0: So we're jumping into Romans 15, and we're getting close to the end. Can you believe this one more week in a Romans series? I know that's crazy, huh? We've been here for a, like a millennium, it feels like. For a 1,000 years, we've been studying the book of Romans. But it's been so good. It's been so, I, I hope that you've been blessed by it, because I've definitely been blessed by the study and the work and, and learning. It's been great. But we'll jump right into Romans 15.1. As you know, he's continuing the conversation from Romans 14. I thought Isaiah did such a good job of opening up you know, the concept of the weak and the strong. And uh, that's hard. I mean, for us as Seventh-day Adventists, you know, we don't hear a lot of sermons on Romans 14. Um, and so, so thank you for the grace in which you accepted his word. And thank you for, um, thank you for thanks God for Isaiah, and really doing that in such a great way. In, in Romans 14, it really talks about the weak. In Romans 15, it begins to talk a bit about the strong. And it starts like this, we who are strong. And by the way, Paul identifies with being strong. He's not identifying with the weak ones. He's like, we, including me, who are strong must be considered of those who are sensitive about things like this, about what he had just talked about. We must not just please ourselves. But what he's doing here is he's recognizing that there are two pieces, right? There are weak and there are strong. And that together we are not just to be in like forbearance of one another. We're not just supposed to endure one another, judging one another, but what we're supposed to do is actually live in compassionate together. And you know, if I ask the question, do you know which one you are? Are you strong or weak? The majority of you would be like, I'm strong, right? Because why not? Why would you say that you're weak? It's like, it's like when teachers ask you what grade you deserve, which is a silly question, but I always tell my kids, if a teacher ever asks you what grade you deserve, I don't care if you're failing that class, be like, I deserve an A. Just own it, own it. Because I mean, why would we assume the worst of ourselves? Do you know what you are? You got to be careful because what's important is that we are always accepting of what God has accepted, right? It's important that we don't, we don't not accept something that God is accepting. I always say, I don't want my invitation list to heaven to be smaller than God's invitation list. Because what he's saying in Romans 14 is that, listen, some who are weak are doing it for a true reason. They're, they're not trying to be weak, but these are things that they believe God has called them to and they need in their lives. And and he does identify and basically say that strong, you know, is better, but it's not more saved. It's not more right. It's a different way of handling what you've been given. We have to accept what God has accepted. Being convinced, he says, We don't need to judge, and we are kind of just intrinsically judgmental people, right? Do you remember back in the day, and maybe it's still real for you, when you like to be the guy or the girl who found the first, you know, that band that, you know, nobody knew about, and you'd be like, oh yeah, do you listen to this band? And people are like, no, I've never heard of them. And like immediately you're judgy about that. You're like, oh, hmm. well, I like this band. Everybody likes this band now. Right? And that's so weird that we would do that because we didn't make the music. All we did is somehow find that band somewhere. And all of a sudden we're judging everybody else. Like they should like the same things we do. That's not necessarily true, but it's such a natural thing for us to go to. Paul deals with it like this in Romans 15 too. He says, we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. So, you know, we also have to understand that our criteria for weak and strong might not be the same as God's and might not be the same as Paul's. Our call is to help each other, that's mutually, develop into more mature Christians. But more mature Christians don't always behave exactly the same. That's really important to understand. Romans 15.3 says this, For even Christ did not live to please himself, as the Scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. I'm going to take a drink real quick. Excuse me. You know, Paul wants us to be obedient because he believes that the grace of God and and the faith that we have leads us to a deep obedience. And and we should have a deep obedience to God, but deep obedience to God doesn't mean the same all the time. And he's, he's admonishing us to live for one another. In 15.3, says, for even Christ didn't live to please himself as the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. That's a quote from Psalm 69.9. The point is not that the strong have received a better grace than the weak. It is that they have, in fact, received it in a better way. And I know that sounds weird, right? What does it mean to say they've received it in a better way? I would say this, it's how we hold things that make a difference, right? You can hold the same thing in a different manner than someone else and it becomes a different thing, right? I I think about a hammer. You can hold a hammer and it can be an incredible tool for construction, but you can hold a hammer, just flip it around and it becomes an incredible tool for destruction, right? How you hold something makes a difference. And what Paul essentially is saying is that both of these things can lead to obedience of the gospel. The strong, they may hold it a little better, but that does not preclude the weak. That does not, you know, exclude, I should say, that the weak are no longer a part of this. We're both a part of it. Romans fifteen four. he continues, he says, listen, such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. He says, listen, we, we we can learn to live together, especially if we take Scripture seriously, because even though we don't all express it exactly the same way, because some of us are weak and some of us are strong, some of us need certain structures in our life to keep us obedient to the gospel and keep us holy, some of us don't, un, don't need those same types of things. But either way, we shouldn't be judging, because what we want to see is Scripture be fulfilled, because scriptures give us hope and encouraging us, encourage us as we patiently wait for God's promises. And I, and I want you to be a group of people, I want us to be a group of people who take scripture seriously. That's why we spent you know, 2,400 weeks in Romans we want to take scripture seriously. That means we, A, have to know scripture, and B, we have to dwell within scripture. And just so you know, we have an opportunity for you to do that. Our preaching calendar is set up for 2019. We work with something called the Global Resource Collective, and every day they have an email that goes out called the Daily Walk. They also have a podcast that deals with the scripture that we will deal with every single week. Now, you may not be somebody who wants to read something every day. That's fine. But if you do, you can sign up for the Daily Walk and uh, get in email every single day that deals with the the text that we will be dealing with. And that is something that you can do. You can start now, start at the beginning of the year, all throughout the whole year 2019. So you can, it can help you take scripture seriously. And we take scripture seriously because scripture speaks to our deepest needs. Romans 15.5 says this, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other as it is fitting for followers of Christ. That means he's acknowledging that there are those who are strong and those who are weak. But he says, listen, even though our expression may not be exactly the same, we can certainly have unity of perspective. Now, what is unity of perspective? And this is a a fair question for us in the Seventh-day Adventist church right now. If that's not your tradition, this is a little in-house talk, right? Our church is struggling with unity of perspective. It's fighting with each other on the highest levels of administration of this church. And if you don't know what's going on, that's great. If you do know what's going on, you understand that we are struggling with each other. See, Paul is interesting because Paul is recognizing that not everybody's the same, that some people need certain things in their life, other people don't need certain things in their life, but those who don't need it don't force those who need it to comply, and same is true the other direction. You see, compliance is not something that Paul is preaching here. What Paul, and Paul, by the way, is not even preaching tolerance of one another. Paul is saying we have to accept one another where we are. Now that's hard when it feels like one group is trying to oppress the other group, right? That's difficult, but Paul doesn't call for it. What Paul calls for is acceptance, each to be convicted. It calls for acceptance and mutual encouragement. And that's hard to do because as we all know, God agrees with me. I mean, you think the same thing, which causes us a problem. Right. Because then we think if God agrees with me, then they should probably be doing the same things I'm doing in the same way that I'm doing them. And if they're not doing the same things that I'm doing in the way that I'm doing them, then well, maybe they're not really part of this thing. And if they're not really part of this thing, I don't really have to treat them in the same way that I should be treating them. And what we end up having is this deep narcissistic understanding of what we're supposed to be as Christians. And Paul literally just said, you're going to have to learn how to live together. You're going to have to learn to encourage one another. You're going to have to learn how to be the people of God together and have, and then by the way, that brings unity. And what is unity? You know, a perfect example of unity, and it's a simple example, and it's a metaphor that we use every single week when we come together, is we stand up and we sing songs, and we're all standing kind of in the same direction, and we're singing the same words of the songs. I mean, when we know the words of the songs. And that Billion song, I don't know what all those words are. There's a billion words in that Billion song. All I know is the word Billion, and I keep, when I sing in the shower, I'm like Billion, 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 Billions. A billion different things, the stuff and billions of the things that we do. And we sing a billion times. My shower's cold. Because it's a long song. I mean, it's a long song, and there's a bunch of us in the house. Because worship unites us, right? It does. Romans 15, 6, Romans fifteen six. then all of you can join together with one voice, that's worship. Amen. Giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship unites. But you know what? The moment you make worship about the process or the genre or the sound, um, just talking, taking on that metaphor of, of the worship music, the moment we make that process and we think that that's the thing that's holy, which by the way becomes a matter of taste, it ceases to unite us and it becomes divisive, doesn't it? And how many churches have split over the music wars? Crazy. God likes what I like. I mean, essentially, that's what it ends up being, right? And, and Paul's going, no, huh? uh doesn't work that way. Romans 15, 7, he says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. This is hard. Our job is to help create mature Christians by accepting one another where we are growing one another but growing one another doesn't mean growing to look like me right someone may be an apple tree someone may be a pear tree they're not going to grow into the same tree they're going to grow into something different each being convicted in their own heart oh but that doesn't that how do you create policy around that how do you create how do you create i mean how do we know that you're in or you're out well let's keep that label really simple do you love jesus you're in So let's ask the question, what does, what does a mature Christian look like? And we could make long lists of this. My dad spent his life working on what a mature Christian really looks like, right? We could go on for a long time, but I'm just going to pick three things. They're not at random. They're things that I think are important, especially in today's world right now. So I think a mature Christian is not anxious it's not anxious about anything. It's not anxious about, um, about somebody else not believing or acting in the same way they do. Right? Able to understand that there's a diversity within the kingdom of God. And if there wasn't, the kingdom of God would be incredibly boring. I mean, I drive and I sometimes wish everyone would do just what I do. Right? Especially on the road. Right? If you have a crosswalk sticker, you should be driving like me just so you know. But that's not true. That's not true. We need lots of different drivers on the road, hopefully all safe, but we need lots of different drivers on the road. We should not be anxious about anything. Um, Mature Christians understand that while horrible things can happen and people act differently and things aren't great, well, we can have a peace that does pass that understanding because we're not fearful of what the world has and we're not fearful of somebody else, especially if somebody else is a little bit different than us. It's okay for there to be diversity. And if there's not, if it's not okay for there to be diversity, then we are closing the borders of the kingdom of God to just people who look and think and act and smell and, and you know, wear jeans jackets, because apparently if you go to this church, you have to wear jeans jackets. Because I was watching last week in Chattanooga, afterwards we were eating lunch, and we put on, um, we put on Crosswalk here, because you guys are behind us, and um, not below us, behind us, um, and... <laughs> And uh, and I'm them when I'm out there, and I'm you when I'm out here, just so you know. But we were watching it, and I realized, like, everyone on the stage was wearing a jeans jacket. And I thought, oh, I didn't know. They all decided, so I'm wearing a jeans jacket, because I wasn't sure if I came back if I'd still be pastor or not, if I didn't wear a jeans jacket, so I'm good. Um, But we're not anxious about anything, because we're also constantly relying on God's power and God's acceptance and God's righteousness, not our own. So we don't have to stress so much. So that even in the midst of a terrible catastrophe like we've seen in paradise, um, there are people who I know today are, are dealing with it in the most mature way that a Christian can deal with it because they understand that a God is powerful, right? That's a mature Christian. A mature Christian also believes in internal growth and it works towards internal growth. And when I say internal, what I mean is they're not waiting for somebody else to put something on them that they must comply to, but they're convicted in their own heart of what God is calling them to do, and how they're called to grow. I worked with young adults for a long time, and that's always a dicey time. Because what, what maturing Christians are doing is they're moving from an external faith, from a faith that has been put on them, or a faith that they grew up with, and it's, it's, it's by osmosis becoming something that's inside of them. But they have to redefine that faith from within. And it's so scary because you know, the first time your kid says, Dad, I don't know if I believe the same thing you do. You're like, oh, yes, you do. And they're like, no, nah, I don't know if I do. And you're like, whoa, that, that's not okay. Like, it's not, it's not good. It's like, it's like, you know, when you have a, tra- I remember, I remember in our house when, um, when we moved our, our tradition of opening presents from Friday night, or not Friday night, from Christmas Eve to Christmas morning. I remember that. And I remember the horrible anxiety that went on with my grandparents. Cause they were like, we're Friday night people. And my dad's like, Friday night. People. We're so avenist, man. I'm so av- get- It's ridiculous. Um, we, you know, he married into a Christmas Eve house, but he wanted it to be a Christmas morning house. And I remember the, I remember the year that we did it because my grandparents were like, we don't even know you anymore. <laughs> And like, I was bummed because we used to get a a lot of presents at night and now we got one. That was the, that was the like, like a fine, you can open one at night. And so they'd give me like one shoe, (laughs) which isn't fair because you knew what you were going to get the next day, unless they're crazy people and they're not going to give you the other shoe. Like, you know, like, okay, great. Well, one of my presents tomorrow is the other shoe, which technically is one present. So you only gave me half what are you doing? But sometimes they give me a shoe and a sock as if their gift math would work out to that's a whole present. So what happens when you grow up in a crazy household and my mom's not here and Smith's don't text my mom and tell her that I'm talking about her right now. <laughs> they already have, I know. But what it means is that is that this faith that we have moves into us, and it's not novelty. It's not it's not um, it's not something we have to comply to. It's something that we live into. And I think also that um, a mature Christian is non-judgmental because they know what they know, and they know what they believe, and they know where God has led them, and they know that it's other people might not experience it the same way, or feel the same way, or think the same way, or or believe even in the same way, and that's okay. And see. What's so easy for us to do, one um, of the gentleman in, in the first service reminded me of this, and I think it's a salient point. It's so easy for us to go, oh, well, if everybody can just do everything, then there's no truth. No, that's a huge jump to relativism. Let's not do that. Let's understand that God convicts people differently and that we don't all express things the same way and that that's okay. Because if heaven was a heaven of one, it, you wouldn't want to be there. Heaven is a heaven of all. And that means it's going to be an amazing place, just like the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven is. So we're just going to jump now to a little bit towards the end of chapter 15, and we'll go relatively quickly here. We're jumping to Romans 15, 17. Paul's now making it personal. He's starting to wrap things up. And so he says, so I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Now, that sounds like boasting. But it's not. It's not boasting because what he's about to say in 1518 will clarify that. In fact, Paul recognizes that there have been results to his work and they have grown the kingdom of God. But it's because he's helped Gentiles understand. He keeps saying that he's a missionary to the Gentiles. That's the job that he was called to do. And Paul recognizes that that worship leads to witness, But he also recognized that witness leads to worship in his life. And that's something that he's sort of lived through. Then in Romans 15, 18, he says, Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. And this is a kind of a dense text. He says, listen, my job is to lead the Gentiles towards obedience. Saving faith leads towards obedience, even though it doesn't look always exactly the same. What saving faith does is it leads us to focus on something different. And, and we, what we love, we focus on. And what we focus on, we begin to emulate and become. And so that's what he had done with the Gentiles. But Paul refuses to talk about his own exploits You see, he says, these things were done through me. But Paul is not altogether comfortable to think what a lot of people have said and a lot of commentators have said. I don't think Paul would be comfortable saying that he saw himself as Christ's partner. He prefers to be Christ's agent or Christ's instrument so that Christ works not with him but through him. He becomes the agent of grace. He becomes the instrument of wisdom and the gospel, And then he says, and by the way, it's by the things that I said and the things that I've done, recognizing the Gentiles didn't just come because he admonished them or he said a good word to them, but they actually came to a saving understanding of who Jesus Christ is because the way they were loved by work and by deed. We can go out and preach all we want, but what we've got to do is we've got to live this grace that we've met that's why we talk so much about the kind of community we're becoming. And it's interesting because Chattanooga is not on the same preaching schedule that we are on right now. That means I get to preach on Thursday or Friday to an empty room for them, which is a little bit weird. But yesterday I did two sermons because we've got two sermons coming up and our team's not going to be here because of Thanksgiving. And... All I did was talk about Crosswalk's end statements. We spent two weeks on the five end statements. We talk about what we're becoming because we understand that just preaching is only part of what people pick up. They also pick up who we are as people and how we live it. This is why we say park well. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. This is why we say park well, because when a guy's trying to run his business and he opens up the door and there's two cars parked there and he can't make a living for his family, how do you think he feels about the church? Does he love us? Not as much. So we park well, because that's part of the gospel, I think. Romans 15, 19. See, they were convinced convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Elysium. Now, what he's saying is he's done the circuit. He's preached the circuit, but his call is for something specifically different. And Wes, if we can go to Romans 15, 20, just jump right to it, that would be okay. Says this, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard. And rather rather than where church has already been started by someone else, because remember, he's writing to Rome and he didn't start the Roman church. So he wants them to know, listen, the reason I didn't come to you is not because I didn't want to come to you, but you have the gospel. And my call is to people who don't have the gospel. Our call is to people who don't have the gospel. We can spend our lives in church and never share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. You've got to begin to pray. That God will put someone in your life who has never heard or never felt the need for Jesus so that you might be able to share the gospel with them. Because there is nothing greater in the life of a believer of Jesus Christ than to look into someone, someone's eyes when they finally understand that God is for them and not against them. That he loves them and he died for them. And it is my prayer that every single person who proclaims the name of Christ in their lives will proclaim the name of of Christ in someone else's life because it changes everything for us. Romans 15, 21, I have been following the plan spoken of in scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see and those who have never heard of him will understand. And then he just sort of wraps it up in 1522, where he says, in fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I've been practicing in these places. You see, Paul wants them to understand that his job is maybe not even what their job is. He's following the gift that God has given him to go and preach a word to the Gentiles. And while he wants to come and see Rome, his biggest concern is not to those in the church in Rome. His biggest concern is those who have not yet met Jesus Christ because that is the call that he's been given. And it's funny that he would say that after spending all this so much much time on the Jews and the Gentiles in the church and the way we live and the sin that we deal with and all these different things. At the end, he goes, but hey, I want you to know I haven't been there not because I don't love you, but because God has given me a call to those who don't know him yet and desperately need to know him. And, you know, for Paul, that that feeling, if he had some anxiety, if we can use that word, it's because he knew what that meant. And it meant the rest of the world that needed to know Christ, that he had anxiety an incredible overwhelming and overpowering job that he had been called to which was simply to go and preach the world to jesus to preach jesus christ to the world and it's the same call that we've been given here today it's the same call that we can't be satisfied with a full church we can't be satisfied with with more people just coming here we have to be bigger and greater and outside of these walls so that people may know who Jesus Christ is. Because I believe the Holy Spirit is, is creating a movement, creating a group of people that will never be satisfied to just come and worship until those people that they know outside of this church, the people that they know in their lives, that they work with, the people that they run into at the grocery store and see at the post office, until those people know who Jesus Christ is as well. And Paul's like, listen, it's kept me out of church sometimes because my call is so much bigger than just what you guys are doing. But praise God. Praise God that we've been given this kind of gift, that we've been given this kind of call to go out, to witness which creates worship and to worship which creates witness. This is what we're called to. How great is it to see God moving and working in these realms? Let's bow our heads today. Jesus Christ, you are a God worthy of praise. You are a God worthy of worship. And you are a God on the move, not willing to sit, not willing to be stayed, taking people on the circuit, moving them around, growing the community of God. Not, through what, not because of what we do, not in partnership with us, but because we've been willing to be available to you. So Lord, make us your agents, make us your instruments, give us your grace. Give us the words that we need to know. Make this, make this message deeply held within us internally. And Lord, let us know that the kingdom of God is so incredibly diverse that we have an opportunity to live in and celebrate that diversity, not by oppressing people to look like us, but man, by living in the freedom of grace that you've given us. Thank you for the diversity of the kingdom of God. May we always accept it. May we always enjoy it. May we always lean into it. We pray these things in your holy name, Lord, the name of Jesus. Amen.